0: You're listening to Longwoods Radio, your healthcare source for ideas, new policies, and best practices. Andre Picard is a celebrated author and the public health reporter at the Globe and Mail. He spoke at our own Breakfast with the Chiefs session most recently, and here he is, introduced by Anton Hart. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Uh, we never introduce our speakers because they are well known to us and André, you are no exception. André Picard. Great, uh, thanks Anton and uh, thank you for the the kind introduction. I've set my stopwatch so that I finish on time and uh, I hope to keep it relatively brief so there's questions and heckling and stuff, because I know when you get the opportunity to get a journalist up live, you've got you to gotta vent, so I don't yeah. want to <laughs> deny you that opportunity. Um, there's a lot of talk these days about healthcare south of the border, with uh, President Barack Obama trying to, to do the seemingly impossible, which is reform the dysfunctional $1.3 trillion a year healthcare system in the U.S. And I use the term system there loosely, because I don't really have one. Uh, But the debate, like the health system itself, has been dominated largely by vested interests. I'm watching it just like you do from afar. Uh, People like the the insurance industry and dogmatists from all across the political spectrum, right and left. Uh, Rarely in that debate do we hear from patients, or more specifically from patients without a political agenda, or or not hired by a group with a message to sell. Uh, Rarer still is to hear patients articulate what they want or expect from a health system. And that's not unique to the U.S. discussion. Uh, We have the same problem in in Canada. So I want to spend the time I have this morning that you've gratefully provided me with, this podium, to try and ask and answer that question. What do patients want? Sort of a twist, I live in Quebec, so it's a twist on the age-old question, what does Quebec want? But uh, (laughs) maybe what patients want is a little simpler, if that's uh, possible. But uh, I think it's a fundamental question, and unfortunately, it's one that we almost never ask. You know, we never just sit back and take a step back and say, what what do patients want and how can we give it to them? Uh, And even if we do ask it, we rarely wait to hear the answer, because we don't necessarily want to hear it, depending on our our position of power. Um, I once wrote a story that showed that doctors allow patients to speak on average for 24 seconds before they interrupt them. That's the kind of science we need to read about um, I dare say that many healthcare administrators and policymakers are even more impatient than doctors. I'm not sure they give patients even 24 seconds before interrupting and telling them what they think or what they should think. Now, there's those in, there are those of you in the audience who will say, and maybe fairly, uh, that you can't answer the question, what do patients want? That's an impossible question. There's too many kinds of patients, there's a whole myriad of them. And that's true, there's all kinds of conditions. Uh, And there's an even more vast number of responses to to health-related predicaments. But I I still believe that patients share a lot of common traits. We can get a sense of of what a patient with a capital P really is. Uh, First and foremost, nobody wants to be a patient. There's the defining criteria, I think. Um, There's one exception I can think of, and that's pregnancy. And I'll come back to that one later. Uh, But it reminds me of the old Woody Allen joke. He he would say, why would I want to join a club that would have me as a member? That's a bit how patients feel. You don't want to be there. Uh, As much as Canadians love Medicare and nurses and doctors and their hospitals, nobody wants to be in a position to to use them, to be sick or wounded or or demented or whatever condition they have. Uh, It's strange then, given this near universal desire to not be sick, that we do so very little to keep people well and to give them the tools to stay well. That's a fundamental flaw in our system. And you know that well, and I'm not gonna harp on that one too much. Although I'll do my fair bit of harping today, don't worry. Uh, You know that we invest a pittance in physical health and even less in mental health, and we pay the price for it at the end of the line. I often write in the paper that in Canada we have a sickness care system, not a health care system. And I, I think we have to fix that. There has to be a fundamental change But if we look south of the border, uh, it's a bit frightening. It tells us how difficult fundamental change is going to be. It's going to hurt, and we have to realize that. And I I think we should uh, take our pain in in small doses, not all at once. So we should start changing gradually now and not wait for a crisis. Now, we can talk about this gross contradiction in why do we invest only in sickness and not in health a little later if you want. But as I said, I I think you know that, that dilemma very well. So I want to get back to talking about the typical patient. Uh, When they require medical care, patients want the care to be good, they want it to be quick, and they want it to be easy to understand. I I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Those are fairly basic and essential demands that they have. In other words, Canadians want the care to be there when they need it. To me, that's the rallying cry of Medicare. That's what it's all about. Uh, Be it a visit to ER for a broken arm, a bypass surgery for a clogged artery or arteries, uh, radiation for breast cancer, monitoring of blood gases for people with COPD, or a long-term care bed for a patient with Alzheimer's. They all want the same thing. Good care, quick care, available care. These desires, once again, are near universal. You won't get any debate among patients about that. Care should be easy to access and easy to understand. That, that should be our goal. It's what you should do every morning when you get up and go to work. But navigating the healthcare system is something else entirely. Uh, It can be be of dizzying complexity, even for the most savvy patient. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be as difficult as it is. And I'll, again, come back to this issue a little later. Another expectation of, of patients or of Canadians is that their care will be free. And I use the term free in quotes here. I'm using it very loosely in the Canadian sense of free meaning we pay for it with our taxes. I'm not sure if that's in Wikipedia, but that should be the Canadian definition. <laughs> uh, in other words, the typical patient believes they should not have to pay for care out of pocket, that it should be covered by their beloved Medicare. After all, that's where about 40% of our tax dollars go, 40% in counting, I'd say. Again, there are some important subtleties here, and I'll return to them in a, in a little bit. But again, that's a pretty universal feeling. Um, I've laid out the expectations of Canadians as I see them, and, and I don't think they're unreasonable. Prompt, good, accessible, insured care from birth until death. That's what we expect. That's what we can afford. We're one of the richest countries in the world. For $172 billion a year, and that's our current level of spending until CAI publishes their next numbers with another $10 billion or so you know, every year, uh, for that kind of money, there's no reason we can't deliver that on that promise. But those expectations are far too often unfulfilled. So I want to ask you why that is. Why can't we do the the seemingly uh, simple and the desired? We have the money for it. We have the ability to do it. Why don't we deliver? One reason, I think, is that no one is speaking up for the patient. And that's what I want the focus of my talk to be this morning. In our healthcare system, the patient is all too often an afterthought. They're not the, the center of our, our being and our doing. In our healthcare system, we have an endless supply of lettered organizations. I saw a few of them roll by there, but OMA, OHA, OMA, and so on. All the O words in this province and the C words nationally. And that stands for Canadian, those of you with a filthy mind. Now, uh, Absent from the list, and I could do a long list because I write about acronyms all the time, notably absent from the list is something like OPA. Where's the Ontario Patients Association or organization? Uh, In fact, in Canada, there are more organizations to defend defend doctors against lawsuits from patients than there are organizations speaking for patients. That tells us something about our system, and we're not even a litigious system. But there's, there's a big hole there in my view. Uh, sure, there are all sorts of patient representatives on boards and lobby groups and institutions have patient councils and the like, and this gives these groups credibility, but I'm not sure it gives patients what they need. Uh, for all the talk of patient-centeredness and the like, in my experience, more often than not, this is tokenism. Let's get a patient on there, it'll make us look good. Patients don't have enough real power in these groups, and that's why they're taken for granted. Uh, Now, I'm only aware of two significant organizations where the word patient is in the name in Canada. And I come across a lot of groups, thousands of them. Uh, There's the Patient Safety Institute. That has the magic word patient in it. But it's not, strictly speaking, a patient group, as you know. It was only created after our system admitted, with much reluctance, that adverse events kill about 24,000 patients a year. That's a pretty heavy price to pay to have a group with the word patient in it. So that's not a patient group, strictly speaking. The only other group I'm aware of that speaks broadly and directly for patients is the Conseil des Malades du Québec, a Quebec group. Very small, unknown outside the borders, and largely unknown inside the borders of Quebec. But that's the only truly patient-centered group that speaks broadly, not for a specific disease concern. And I'm, I'm a bit baffled as to why we don't have one in Canada. Now, there are those who'll say, hold on, we do have a lot of patient groups. We have the Canadian Cancer Society, Heart and Stroke, the Lung Association, etc. Uh, now, it's true these consumer groups play an important role. I think they play a fundamental role in our health system. But they have specific and narrow concerns. And that's not a knock on them, that's their jobs. The patient, there has, the patient when you look at this collection of groups, has been reduced to a collection of body parts or disease entities. And that's, that's not good. These groups for all the good they do, are not speaking for the patient as a whole and for their broad concerns across the whole care spectrum. And they're not necessarily patient-controlled. So again, I I don't think that that voice of the patient is there. And I hope I've convinced you that the voice of patients is not being adequately heard and that that needs to be remedied. And it probably shouldn't be remedied by people in this room. It should be remedied by patients. But give them the tools to do it, and I think it'll happen. Um, Now I want to shift gears a bit and give you a sense what I think patient representatives would be saying if they were given an opportunity and a forum and a group to to express themselves, just as you have many groups represented here on the professional side. Uh, But maybe I should only tell you what they're going to say after you've given them a group and given them money to create it, because you might not like what I say. So just take this and put it in your pocket and still help them set up those patient groups, regardless of what I say. Now, I want to state that, uh, up front that my comments aren't based on any scientific in- inquiry or anything scientific. Uh, in fact, I've made a, a determined effort this morning. I have no numbers in my speech. It's early in the morning. No PowerPoint, because I, have a, I go into anaphylactic shock. I, I'm allergic to PowerPoints now. I go to too many conferences. But I, this is uh, an impressionistic view uh, that I have of what I think patients would tell you if they were given the opportunity and a formal structure to do so. Uh, But I hope it's a fair representation based on the the time I've been in the health system. Uh, I've been doing this job for a couple of decades and have uh, a couple of decades of experience as as a caregiver to parents with long-term chronic illnesses. So so that's where the background comes from, and that's where my views come from. And I should mention, while I live in in Quebec, my parents lived in Ontario, so some of these comments, I hope, hit close to home. Only the bad ones, not the good ones. Um, what I hear first and foremost from patients, and this is not something we read in the newspaper or hear on the news very often, is something very important. I hear that we deliver really good medical care in this country. Uh, that's reflected in satisfaction ratings. If you read them, they're consistently very, very high. And we have to distinguish here between polls that uh, poll patients and polls that poll the public. Uh, one of the paradoxes of Canada is uh, the people who are in the health system love it, and those who are not in it, it think it's a disaster. But there, go, there is another Canadian trait. So I think, look at the satisfaction ratings. We do a great job of delivering medical care. Uh, we do the plumbing well, is the way I would put it. We have top-notch medical professionals, state-of-the-art medical equipment, and infrastructure that I tried to find something to good, to, good to say about, but let's just say it's passable. I'll come back to the infrastructure issue a little, little later. On the medical side, the bottom line is this. Our outcomes are as good as anyone in the world. And we should be proud of that. And that matters to patients. Now, I don't want, to, to give you, the, I don't want you to get swelled heads at the top. I'll, I'll knock this down a bit later. But this isn't all about medical care. In Canada, I think our social safety net is a really key contributor to the health of people. And we shouldn't forget that. But today I'm talking about the health system. And it does a good job. So the care is good. I think we also do the business side well. Uh, When they look at us south of the border, if they're honest, they're envious of what they see. Uh, Very well-administered system, cost-efficient. Our administrative costs are a fraction of the US because we actually have a system and they don't. Um, I often hear that our health system is bureaucratic and it has a lot of fat in it. Personally, I don't see a lot of evidence of that claim. I think that's largely political rhetoric and it comes largely from people who are not in the health system. I, I just don't think it's true. It's an easy thing to say, but, but there's not much basis of fact. Uh, we also do access and fairness well. That's one of the keys to healthcare, is that it be fair and it be accessible. Thanks to our publicly funded insurance system, no one in Canada is denied basic medical care. And we often go well beyond the basics. Again, we, we compare well to any country in the world on that, on that stage. And this matters to patients too. They they believe in fairness. Now, at the risk of this sounding like a a jingoistic homage to Medicare, let me also say there's a lot of room for improvement. So let me get into some of that. To me, there's something really essential missing from our system, and something that leaves patients and their family members really frustrated. Uh, I don't think we do customer service very well. And that's one of my bugaboos. If you read my column, you know I write about this often. I know it's a crude way of putting it, people don't like the word consumer or customer, but when you come right down to it, patient-centered care and family-centered care has to begin and probably end with good customer service. The person has to matter. And as I said before, I'm not convinced that that's the case right now. What does good customer service mean in healthcare? Uh, To me, it means anticipating needs, delivering care with respect, with a capital R, making it easy to navigate the care system and making amends when things go wrong. Now ask yourselves how many of those things we do consistently every day. I I don't think it's enough of them. In Canada, we talk a good game about patient-centered care, but we don't walk the talk near often enough. That starts right at the front door of our institutions. I, I spend a lot of time in hospitals. I've literally been to hundreds of hospitals around the country. That's, I even go on my holidays, I drop in because I'm perverse in that way, just to see what uh, hospitals are like. Uh, my, my children have also uh, been kind enough as to have things happen to them so that I visit hospitals in remote areas. That's always fun too, especially if you have a Quebec Medicare card, which is like the plague in Ontario. But we won't talk about uh, portability today. Um, now, so I've been to a lot of these hospitals, and I've been lost in most of them, and I can tell you they're not welcoming places. Uh, most hospitals are dizzying mazes. They're really difficult to get around, to navigate. Uh, to me, they're almost a metaphor for our care journey in Canada. Uh, you know, you've got a good arrow pointing down a hall, and then there's no other arrow. <laughs> you know, you know, because somebody has painted, or, or it's been worn out by the shoe prints, I don't know, but... To me, there's there's a a nice metaphor in there for for what goes on when you walk around a hospital. And I'm sure you're all on Pill Hill here. I'm sure you're familiar with what I'm talking about. Uh, At least when we put in new arrows, we should at least paint over the old ones. Because I've made many circular journeys around your your institutions. Um, I think hospitals are also, for the most part, ugly and uncomfortable. Uh, We seem to have an affection for neo-Stalinist architecture in Canada. You know, we have these big gray institutions with uh, endless hallways painted. Uh, I was trying to think of polite ways of describing them, but puke green and piss yellow is the, the, <laughs> the only color charts I seem to have, have found in most hospitals. Uh, now, I try to understand why this is. I think it's sort of the, the Presbyterian background of Canada, a small lowercase p on Presbyterian. But, you know, we don't want to give the impression that we're wasting money by actually making places look nice. And I, I think that's sort of a a uh, pretty sh- short-sighted view of, of how we should care. I think our institutions should look nice. They should inspire confidence. And the, the marginal amount of extra money it would cost would would certainly be worth it. I also think it's hard to expect good health in an institution that looks pallid and unhealthy. And we, we have to take that lesson. I have been, been often to the uh, Alberta Children's Hospital called the Lego Hospital. Beautiful spot. It inspires confidence in your care. That's what all our hospitals should look like. There's actually... Uh, light in that hospital. Imagine, patient rooms that have windows. uh, In some places I've been, that that doesn't exist. Um, Now, all too often, people in our healthcare institutions are as gray and grumpy as the institutions themselves. That's another uh, big drawback for me as a patient or as a family member of a patient. They don't look you in the eye. When someone speaks to you, the most likely thing you're uh, going to hear in a Canadian hospital is, take a seat, wait, fill out a form, not welcoming words. And I know there's all kinds of reasons this happens, people are overworked, etc., but I don't want to hear the excuses anymore. I want better customer service, and I think patients want it. When patients go to hospitals, uh, they're frightened, and the way they're treated makes the visit all the more frightening. They're often isolated. They have nobody to talk to. I, I can't tell you how many times my mother... Who suffered from COPD and dementia and a number of other conditions later in life. Can't tell you how often she was just stuck in a hallway for hours. Without you know, literally without a pot to pee in. That's too many people get treated like that. It's it's insulting. Um, they're isolated, as I said. They don't have anybody to ask simple questions to. Everybody's too busy. You know, that, that's not good enough. That's not good health care. Uh, as I mentioned, my mother, because she had COPD, she lived with it uh, for 15 years after they gave her two weeks to live. I, I always at every public forum like to thank doctors for their incompetency. Thank you very much. So the uh, two-week two uh, death watch uh, prolonged for a decade and a half, she got to see her grandchildren grow up, which was wonderful. But that's an aside. Uh, in that time, she spent a lot of time in the health system, uh, and in hospital in particular in the ER, on the ward, in the ICU, CCU, you name it. She went through the whole alphabet of our health system many times. Uh, As I said, my mother loved her care. She loved her nurses, especially her home care nurse, etc. Never had anything bad to say about them. But she hated one thing above all. She hated the coldness of the reception she got, especially at hospital. Uh, In the hospital, and she lived in a small town, they knew who she was, but they treated her every single time as if she had never been there before. Uh, even though my mom was a frequent flyer, medical staff asked her the same questions and got her to say, fill out the same forms every time. Even Air Canada treats its frequent flyers better than that. And, and that's saying something. <laughs> uh, now you'll notice i focus focused my comments here and my negative comments on hospitals. And, and I've done so deliberately uh, because our, our system is hospital-centric. I think a little too hospital-centric. I think we have too many hospitals in Canada and too many hospital beds. I know that might get me lynched in this crowd, but I, I'm going to express the, the views I have. I think much of what we do in hospitals can and should be done elsewhere, and we should, should aim for that. And I promised before I'd come back to the example of childbirth. To me, that's the most glaring example. Uh, the number one reason for admission to Canadian hospital is still childbirth. How ridiculous is that? Uh, if we had a health system that was patient-centered, we'd have birthing centers and midwives coming to the home, and we'd stop treating childbirth as an illness. Uh, we have to get pregnant women out of hospitals. The vast majority of them don't belong there. I also think uh, we have too many acute care hospitals, beds, as I said, but conversely, the most glaring shortcoming in our system today, again, in my opinion, is the lack of available and appropriate long-term care beds. There's a real yawning gap there of care, and one, again, that doesn't get near enough attention. Our hospitals are filled, you know, people say, oh, we need more beds, our hospitals are full. Well, our hospitals are full of bed blockers, people who should be in more appropriate care. Uh, They should be receiving home care and supportive care in nursing homes, or specialized care in long-term care facilities. And our Medicare system should facilitate that. We shouldn't have this ridiculous changeover where uh, one day you're a hospital patient, and the next day, oh, by the way, uh, we're going to reclassify you. And it's going to cost you $2,000 a month. There, there's some real perversities in our system that we have to deal with, that people shouldn't have to, to endure. Uh, when we talk about wait times, you know, it's great that we're doing hip replacements, et cetera, a little faster. But when we talk about wait times, that's what our focus should be. It should be on the, the intolerable and often inhumane waits for placements in long-term care. I, I can't tell you how many hundreds and thousands of Canadians are suffering because of this. It, it should be a, a priority. But again, this, patients don't have a voice, and particularly seniors don't have a voice. They're a group that doesn't speak out, uh, that takes it on the neck all the time, and we, it, it's awful the way we treat them, by and large. Um, the move from acute care to long-term care is a transition. And transitions, as you know, are really important. Transitions are where we fail. I, I saw in the recent Longwoods, uh, after I had written my speech, I saw a little title of an article about the, the, the handoff. The handoff is where things are going wrong. And I, while I wouldn't use the football metaphor, I think that's entirely correct. That's where everything breaks down. We do have these wonderful pockets of care all along the way, but our connections between them fail all too often. And that, that's what frustrates people. There's no reason that we can't deliver a continuum of care because we have all the elements in place, but we're just not connecting them. So you know know where these problems are occurring. They're occurring in the transition from the family doc to the specialist, from diagnosis to surgery, from surgery to home care, from ER to ICU, from acute care to long-term care. That's where all the breakdowns are occurring. Uh, Transitions are when patients are most vulnerable. Transitions are when patients fall through the cracks and some of them don't get found. They, they fall pretty far. A big part of the problem, I think, is tracking. And to do tracking better, we need electronic health records. Now that's not today's subject, and I know a lot of people have now broken out into a cold sweat because I've said e-health, but <laughs> I do uh, I do owe it to you and to myself to say a few words on the topic. I, I think that uh, have patients dependent on paper records in 2009 is really an act of contempt. It's a travesty in our health system. Uh, we live in an era of instant communication. We have someone sitting here sending Twitter posts. But we cross the street to these billion-dollar institutions, and we still have paper records. It, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, we have to be able to transmit health information in a modern fashion. We're, we're in the horse and buggy era in the communication of health information. It's unconscionable, and it's bad patient care. And we have to deal with it as a priority, no matter how politically uncomfortable it makes us. Uh, I have no intention today of delving into the politics behind the lack of electronic health records, in this province in particular. Uh, Apparently it's a sore point here, I'm not sure, but I've heard. But let me say this as bluntly and quickly as possible. What do patients think about this? I don't think patients care about who expense their choco bits. I don't think they care that much about consultant fees. I think they care about the job being done. They care about the quality of care. As long as we depend on paper records, healthcare will not be as good as it should be. Uh, for me, the dithering and the polit- politicking that surrounds the creation of e-health records is a symbol of misplaced priorities. Uh, this province doesn't have electronic health records because more time, money, and effort has gone into turf protection than into improving the collection and dissemination of information in electronic records. I know that, and I think all of you know it. So let's get on with the job, and I won't embarrass some of you any further now. Uh, customer service, I want to come back to that, but e health is a, a key part of it. Customer service from the welcome desk right through to the electronic health record is not merely a series of activities. It's a question of culture. And that's why it's it's not happening. It's the culture that has to change. In Canadian healthcare, we have a culture that says the needs of the system almost always take precedence over the needs of the individual patient. Maybe that's the downside of believing in the collectivity. But you can believe in the collectivity and not put the the demands of a system over that of the individual. We can balance the two. We have a culture that says investing in customer service is not a priority. Now I've spoken extensively about patients and maybe I I realize that I haven't been clear enough about how I define the term. Uh, We need to recognize that medical conditions don't just affect individuals. When I talk about patient, I'm speaking much more broadly. Uh, Medical conditions affect entire families. Sometimes they affect entire communities depending on how they hit. But I mean, limit it to families. And that's particularly true of chronic illnesses like heart disease or COPD or psychiatric illnesses. They involve a whole bunch of people and a lot more than one person suffers and a lot more than one person has to be cared for. In our system, we treat patients, I think we treat them pretty badly, but we treat their families even worse. Uh, We talk a good game about including families in care, but the reality to me is we dump a crushing burden of responsibility on them and we provide very little support. Again, we can't limit our care to the disease entity, to the person. Uh, We send people home quicker and sicker, but we provide little training to their unpaid caregivers. And there's an army of unpaid caregivers out there. We provide niggling amounts of home care. Uh, We provide virtually no respite care for long-term caregivers. We burn them out. Uh, It's not unusual for caregivers to die within months of of their partner dying. And we're killing them, to be blunt about it. We also have a bizarre double standard about privacy. This is another thing that used to drive my, my mother crazy. We demand all kinds of things of loved ones. But when we, they ask for even the most basic information, we throw up our hands and say, sorry, we have privacy legislation. Well, to the average individual, that's nonsense. Families have a right to care without the additional burden of a bureaucratic blindfold. So if the rules don't work now, let's fix the rules. Let's make our, our system more patient-friendly and more family-friendly. Okay. Uh, in discussing what patients want from a healthcare system and what they think of the health system, you'll notice there are some pretty big topics that I didn't touch on. Some of you may wish I didn't touch on e-health either, but so be it. Uh, I've, I've not, in all the time I've been prattling on so far, mentioned the words public or private and I'm not gonna do so at any length. I think the private public rhetoric distracts us from the discussion of what really matters. And what really matters to me is what do patients want and how can we deliver it. I don't think the private public discussion that takes up so much political time and so much air space really matters to patients ultimately. Honestly, they could care less if their physician works in a private clinic, a public clinic, Uh, if their hospital is administered by the Ministry of Health, the Shriners, Walmart. Honestly, people don't really care about that. My mother used to always say, by the way, that she got much better customer service at Walmart than at the hospital. They would actually remember her name. They would bring out the cart to carry her little oxygen tank as soon as they saw her in the parking lot. That's customer service. Now, I don't want to take the metaphor too far. I don't want our hospitals to be Walmart, but if you can do that with Uh, paying seniors minimum wage at Walmart, God knows we we can do it in our hospitals. There's there's no excuse for not doing it. Uh, What matters to people is not public or private. It's the quality and consistency of care. What matters is that they can depend on the care to be there and that their insurance program, which we call Medicare, is there for them. Now, that's all I intend to say on the private-public topic. As I said, it takes up way too much time and, and airspace. I just wanted you to know that I'm ignoring the issue deliberately. It's not an oversight, and if you want to talk about it more in the question period, I'll I'll be happy to to go on then. Uh, Another thing I didn't mention is the Canada Health Act, which, uh, if I recall my Canadian history, it was uh, brought down by Moses uh, on a tablet of stone. (laughs) I'm a bit... uh, It's been a little while since I was in high school, but I think that's how we got the Canada Health Act. Or maybe it was Monique Beijing, I don't know, but... Uh, and I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't talk about those, those bureaucratic underpinnings of the system. Uh, and again, that's deliberate. Uh, this notion that Medicare defines us as a nation is, is something I hear over and over again. And once again, I, I think this is nonsense. I would hate to live in a country that's defined by an insurance program. There's a lot more that defines us than, than that. Medicare is good, it's a nice program, it's a smart program, It's a publicly administered, state-funded insurance program, period. That's how we should treat it. And as long as we get caught up in this religious uh, admiration of Medicare, we're never going to allow it to be updated and modernized and fixed. And it it needs a lot of modernization. Now, that being said, I want to talk about the CHA a little bit. Uh, Because, again, there is too much drama behind it and too much... uh, sense put to it, its meaning and how important it is. It's a piece of legislation like any other, not a very well-written piece of legislation, but it has some important elements. Uh, the most important of which are, as you know, the five program criteria. Uh, we often describe these as the guiding principles of Medicare, but they're actually program criteria. If your province doesn't fulfill these, technically, they don't get money from the federal government. In reality, that's not true, but at least on paper, it's true. So. Let's do a little reminder of what they are. Uh, This is what was carved on those tablets of stone by the Lord himself. Uh, Number one, public administration. Provincial health insurance plan must be administered on a non-profit basis and audited yearly. Two, comprehensiveness. The provincial health insurance plan, quote, this is my favorite quote from the Act, quote, must insure all insured health services, end quote. I don't know about you guys, but I had to take philosophy 101 in university and that wouldn't have cut the mustard, but there, there you go. That is what it is. Number three, universality. All insured health services must be provided on, quote, uniform uniform terms and conditions. Again, a nice vagueness there. Four, portability. Insured health services must be paid at a rate set by the province, even if a patient is treated in another jurisdiction. Well, I mentioned before I have a Quebec health insurance card, so I won't talk about that. Uh, Five, accessibility. The provincial health insurance plan must provide, quote, reasonable access, close quote, to services and must provide, quote, reasonable compensation, close quote, to medical practitioners. There are our five guiding principles. That's why I don't want our country to be based on this. Thank you very much. Um, But those are important to know, but this isn't going to inspire people to go out in the streets. This isn't going to inspire love. And Medicare is, is something more than that. It's more than the Canada Health Act. But that's its basis. So let's not lose sight of that. It's an insurance program. It's nice. La-di-da. Uh, and while it's not mentioned my name, I do think there, there are other principles that are implied in there that are important. Um, the most, You know, I think... Uh, Why we have those five elements is they're they're designed to ensure fairness and equity. Not necessarily equality. Equity and equality are different words. But that's what the the goal of the Act was, among other things, and to stop doctors from extra billing. But that's the the fundamental philosophy behind it. Let's have fair, equitable health care. I think Canadians, by and large, believe in that. They believe in fairness and equity. And that's why they support Medicare, even though they're not conversant with all the the nitty-gritty of the circular arguments within the legislation. Um, I also think there's a sixth principle that's implicit in there, and it's one we don't talk about near enough, and I think that's accountability, or some people call it affordability. But I think that's where the the patient service comes in, or the customer service. I think there's an accountability there that's implied in all those measures that, that we, again, don't respect enough. Uh, Canadians are a practical lot of people. Uh, not, not many people believe that all Medicare can be provided to all people at all times on an unlimited basis. I, I think Canadians are more realistic than that. Uh, patients know intuitively that there are limits to the care. And again, this is another topic I write about and I get lots of hate mail about, but I think people know that, that there are. we have to set uh, endpoints. We just can't fund everything forever and without limits. And I think people accept this notion that care has to be rationed in some way. And I know I'm using the ugly R-word, but to me rationing is not, it's not a bad word. It's a, it's a reasonable expectation and something we have to do in an in a, in insurance system, public or private or otherwise. And people have to know that. We have to be honest with them about that. Now the problem isn't rationing. The problem isn't saying that some stuff isn't being covered. The problem is that we're not clear in any way to patients on how the lines are being drawn. There's a constantly moving target. And it's not again, it's not fair to them. Uh, to me, the most glaring public policy failure in the healthcare field today is our unwillingness to define what's in and out of the Medicare basket of services. I, I think we owe it to ourselves to do that. And if we, it doesn't have to be a set list It can be a way of determining criteria, but we have to set those limits. Patients want to know them, and they should know them. Uh, Instead, what we do is we perpetuate the fiction that there are no limits, and that's why our spending is not controlled in any honest way. And that's, I think, dishonest and counterproductive. How am I doing for time? I'm okay. Uh, Yesterday I was uh, at the University of Ottawa. I was at a forum for new medical students. I go and speak to the new university students. I was in this very lecture hall, the U of T students, last week, uh, yesterday at U of O. It's always fun to meet the uh, green behind the ears, up-and-coming students. They all think they're going to be wonderful, and they're never going to be cynical like you guys and me. (laughs) So I go there, and I try and burst their bubble. But... Anyhow, I was on a panel of people from uh, different backgrounds who are offering up advice to these, these young people with uh, really dauntingly impressive resumes uh, on how they can be better doctors in the future. So just at the start of their career, try and get them and say, listen, put these uh, evil thoughts in their head that there's more to doctoring than to uh, talking to one patient in their room and billing, that it's much more complex than that. One of my fellow panelists was uh, Yves Brunet. Uh, he's a patient who's lived 25 years with HIV-AIDS, more than half his life. And he offered up what I thought was the most important advice of the day to these would-be doctors. And I want to read you a quote from him. Uh, he said, Look me in the eyes. Look every patient in the eyes and tell them the truth. Do it honestly and do it compassionately. And I thought in those two sentences, Mr. Brunet summed up all the advice you, you really need to deliver for patient-centered care. That, that's what it's about. It's about looking people in the eyes and telling them the truth, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's difficult. Uh, Listening to people matters too. Uh, Mr. Brunet had a wonderful uh, expression. He said, grow a third ear. You know, you can never listen enough to the patient. And if they're in a profession where they interrupt people after 25 seconds, they need maybe four ears, maybe not just three. Um, so listening to people matters, and it matters a lot to them, especially when they're scared and they're sick and their families are frightened. They don't know how they're going to pay for their cancer drug. That's all very frightening. They need to be listened to. Uh, care that's not centered around the patient and the family cannot be technically efficient. It can be technically efficient, and it can be medically effective, but it will never be good care. You, know, you have to go beyond the, the technical aspect. Uh, The humanity of the care matters. To provide good care, you have to do a lot more than treat a condition. You have to treat a person, a whole person, and sometimes you have to treat their family too. Patients are not just vessels for a disease or a health condition. They're not just billing numbers or cost centers. Uh, Patients are physical, emotional, and spiritual beings. And for all the good and bad that implies. They're not always easy. Uh, you have to treat them in the context of their lives. You have to take into account their support system or lack thereof, their family, their income, and so on. Those measures will tell you as much about a person's health as their blood pressure or their blood gases. They're vital measures. And we don't do those vital measures enough in our system. We're too technical. Uh, Every health problem a person has, every encounter they have with the health system is a journey. Now, that's a cliche. But... There's often some truth to cliches. Right now, we pay attention to only a little part of that journey, generally the part that people spend uh, in a doctor's office or in a hospital bed. It's all institutional. We focus too much on the institutional. Uh, The journey, no matter how long or or how short, often seems disjointed to patients. There's all kinds of silos within our health system. And even more when you try to connect with other systems like social services or housing or education. Things that are really get people healthy and keep them healthy. Uh, There's a horrible disconnect between health and social services that results in a lot of waste of health dollars. Now that may be a subject for another day. We could talk about that for a long time. But I want to put it out there. Health does not work in isolation. And people's health is not strictly about providing sickness care. Uh, It's about engaging people more broadly as citizens, not just as patients. Now, I've spoken today uh, about the importance of giving patients a voice. And I don't want you to think it's sufficient to have a single organization, say an Ontario Patient Association or something similar. That's not what I'm talking about. That would be a start. Uh, High-profile advocates who stage press conferences and publish reports can play an important role, but they're only a small part of what's required. Uh, people need, in the, in the jargon of the, the social sciences, multiple platforms. Uh, they need to be able to tell their stories right, all along the journey. That, that's so important to, to express yourself, to be heard, and to be listened to. Patients need to be able to speak to their frontline healthcare provider, but nurses and doctors are so busy they have seemingly no time for those conversations anymore. Healthcare is suffering as a result. Uh, Patients also need to get their views heard up the chain of command to be able to express their dissatisfaction, and yes, their satisfaction, because there's a lot of that too, to administrators and ministry officials, policymakers and politicians. Uh, To me, without good communication, we can't have good health care. I think it's an essential component. Feedback needs to be an integral part of delivering care as well. There needs to be follow-up, not just treatment. I know there's a lot of patient satisfaction stuff going on, particularly in this province. That's not too bad. It's a good start. But it strike, a lot of it strikes me as formulaic, a lot of preset questions that generate predictable answers. Maybe that's a bit too critical of your feedback surveys, but that's, again, my, my impression of them. Um, be a little braver and a little bolder. Ask people, ask patients and their families about the journey and let them tell you how to improve it. Ask them some open-ended questions. That's when you get interesting stories. Some institutions are implementing storytelling initiatives, and those are great. I applaud those. I think they're, they're an important initiative. But again, these have to be more than corporate arts and crafts projects. They have to be real. They have to have meaning. Uh, while letting patients tell their stories is important, listening to them is more important still. And while talking and listening is all well and good, there's no point into the exercise if we don't act on what we learn. The key to patient-centered care is better communication. It requires a dialogue, not monologues in parallel, which is, I think, what we have now. Communication needs to be an integral part of patient care, not an afterthought or a bureaucratic task to check off the list. Uh, There needs to be, in my view, patient and family representatives within the system. And there are some. Patient advocates and family advisory councils and the like. But again, this can't just be tokenism. They have to have a real voice and they have to have real power. In, all, in our health system, we're all for giving patients and families a voice. But we rarely give them any real power. It's a little scary. Uh, we did need to do more than talk about patient-centered care. We need to live it. And I'll wrap up there. And if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Thank you. Thank you.